Welcome to another episode of No Small Jobs, where we dive into the nitty-gritty of uh, the careers of everyday people. I am your host, Paul Nguyen. Uh, thanks to everyone who listened to the first show and uh, and provided your feedback. That was much appreciated. Um, we are now available on Podcast Addict and Stitcher and currently waiting to be assigned up to iTunes. But uh, keep an eye out for us, otherwise we can be found on SoundCloud pretty easily. Today, my guest is Cole. Cole is a retired mica paramedic and hypnotherapist. Uh, different times, different jobs. So, welcome, Cole. Well, thank you, Paul. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, what what came first? Was it was it were you a, a mica paramedic first? Or yes. You... All right. So, for for those who don't know, what is a mica paramedic? A mica paramedic is uh, a specially trained paramedic. Uh, trained in advanced techniques in pre-hospital emergency care. So they started off in the in, a, in Melbourne in the early 1970s based on a model from the United States where uh, some EMTs or ambulance officers and some fire officers were trained in advanced life support, mainly on a consult-only basis, but they were allowed to put drips in, uh, intubate, put tubes down people's uh, lungs to help them breathe better, give certain drugs... Uh, in Melbourne, they started the program off in the early 70s with a doctor and an ambulance officer on the on the car and sometimes a nurse, and then they decided that the ambulance officers could be trained in the pre-hospital emergency care to that level, uh, beyond what they were already trained in, and so they started up the course. And so it was you had to have about five years' previous experience before you could join the MICA as a, as a qualified ambulance officer or paramedic, and then you could learn to do those extra things to help people... Uh, uh, a little bit more than you would before. So, are you saying that were you one of the first pe- first micers? Or? No, I, I was not one of the first. Uh, when I first joined the, the ambulance service as and qualified as an ambulance officer, there were uh, three micer units in Melbourne and one in Frankston. Uh, the fourth one opened not long after I started, uh, so they were very spread out, uh, or you know, very hard to um, to cover all the jobs. So it's now grown into a, a, a massive thing over the over the forty years, which is fantastic. Uh, but yes, uh, when I first started, there were the, the three units, then the fourth, and I started, there were, a fifth one started uh, just not long after I qualified on MICA. Okay. So what what um, brought you into the industry in the first place, into the ambulance services? Uh, it's a it's an interesting sort of a, a travel in my part. Uh, I always believed when I was young uh, that I was going to uh, study medicine, become a paediatrician. All oh, right. Um, and uh, I was not very brilliant at school but I was okay and I got around to about year 10 or 11 and I realised I probably didn't have the drive and commitment to get the, get the marks to get in and or complete the course. So I then started looking for other things. I looked into psychology as a possibility, a few other things and then I met a qualified ambulance officer at the time who um, just happens to now be uh, uh, related to me by marriage uh, <laughs> and he told me about the sort of work he did and I became very interested in that. So I, um, over a couple of years, I applied and eventually got accepted to train uh, as an ambulance officer. And so how long is the training program? When I first started the training program to qualify as a level two officer, which was the minimum requirement, was uh, six months. And then a 12 months on top of that to become a level three officer. And then that was sort of all that was available. Uh, so now the course is actually a, a three-year university degree in um, health sciences. So things have changed a lot since I started, but uh, so my basic training was six months plus another twelve to become a what was a grade three officer, 
and that was where most people sort of stayed uh, for the rest of their careers. Okay. And so um, talk us through an average day for, for uh, a paramedic. Uh, a, a standard or a... Well, like let's start with standard and standard. move upwards. Uh, at the time I started, we had split sort of roles where everyone was qualified some people did just emergency work or was designated emergency vehicles and some were transport vehicles. So uh, 24 hours cover was a standby vehicle at each of our branch stations, um, except when they're out, obviously. They weren't standing by anymore. Uh, and the other crews, might be two or three crews at each branch, would come in, stagger it out through the day. And they would do things like take people for, you know, doctor's appointments, uh, x-rays, you know, treatment at Peter McCallum, a place like that. Uh, but they were always available as a standby emergency vehicle. So the emergency vehicle in your area was out and you were clear at a hospital, like say I worked at Preston Branch, so if I was clear at Panch Hospital in those days or, uh, and the emergency vehicle was out, they'd just sort of stand by there. Another emergency come in, we were then sent to the second emergency that came in if, if need be. So the transport cars used to probably do, you know, around the busier places, probably uh, 12 or 13 transfers sometimes double up two patients at a time emergency cars might do four or five call outs in a in a day and maybe same about over a night shift and so for the transport vehicles were they also in that sort of night day shift regime or they were just exclusively during the day they were pretty much during the day they were staggered around the branches within the branches starting around about 7 30 in the morning finishing about 11 o'clock at night Okay. And so, um, uh, how, uh, what was it like sort of trying to maintain uh, a life outside of work and with the shift work as well? Uh, it had its moments, of course. Um, missed a lot of uh, moments with the kids when they were young. Uh, not able to go to concerts or, you know, gymnastics displays or things like that on weekends when you lost it on weekends. But uh, it also had the added benefit that quite often our days off were during the week. So I got to do kinder milk and fruit and uh, go to play group and things like that and go to reading at, at the school. So it was a sort of swings and roundabouts as far as that goes. Okay. Um, so uh, what, what made you decide to upgrade to be a MICA paramedic? Um, I suppose that I was enjoying the work as a, uh, as a uh, general duties officer. And then I sort of felt that I needed something a little bit more. So after a couple of years, uh, I thought I might uh, look into the MICA program. So I applied for the MICA program about three years after I first qualified and um, subsequently got selected to do the program and qualify. And I just think it felt like something more stimulating. Not that it wasn't stimulating the other way, you know, the, the general mm. duties, but I just felt like I had a bit more to offer. And uh, that's why I did it. And so you sort of alluded to the fact that uh, earlier that the life of a MICA paramedic uh, or the average day is somewhat different to that of a standard paramedic. Was that right? Yes. Well, the, the MICA paramedics in, in the, the days were primarily set out as um, pre-hospital coronary care divisions. Uh, so they basically dealt with chest pains that were probably cardiac in nature that expanded into uh, respiratory problems and and multiple trauma and things like that. So the microparamedics did mainly those three things, uh, or, you know, yeah, heart attacks, severe respiratory problems, and, and severe traumas, entrapments, uh, you know, rescues off cliffs, things like that we're always involved with, uh, where, the, where the potential for injury was greater than maybe just your standard um, medical or surgical emergency. Okay. And so, to your knowledge, what is it like now for a microparamedic in terms of the, the scope of their work? Uh, I think since um, I left the ambulance service, the uh, microparamedics training has been upgraded 
markedly, which is a fantastic thing. I think their skill levels have been improved. Uh, I think they're uh, able to do a lot more interventions that we were not allowed to do. And so I think it's a it's a fantastic program. Yeah. Are you still involved with Ambulance Victoria? Uh, not directly with Ambulance Victoria, but I am a, a member of the Retired Ambulance Association of Victoria and also a welfare officer for that organisation. So um, looking after the welfare of uh, retired officers. During your time as a paramedic, both as a, as a sort of run-of-the-mill paramedic and as a micro paramedic, was there um, a particularly profound or significant moment in your career? Um, yes, there were a few. Mm. <laughs> Excuse me. There were a few. Um, a lot of them were uh, rather trying situations that we found ourselves in with uh, some of the work we're doing. But uh, I suppose one of the highlights was one of the funniest things I ever did was I delivered one of my own children. Oh, really? Tell uh, us accidentally. about that. Accidentally. Um, well, my third son was about to be born and I was on night duty and uh, my wife went into labour and rang and said she's in labour, need to go to hospital. So I turned off down to mum's place to get mum because she'd look after the other kids and took mum home and said, come on, let's go. And she said, no, we're going nowhere. And uh, baby was about to be born right there at the house. So I'd never delivered a baby, 10 years in the job, never delivered a baby. Wow. And uh, trying to think back to all the the lectures I'd had, (laughs) practical procedures. And so, yeah, I was fortunate enough to be able to live with my own son. Wow, there you go. Um, So you you alluded earlier there were some trying cases. Are there any particular that you found most challenging or Uh, the ones that stuck with you? Yes, fair few, Paul. Um, Ones that most upset me were ones involving children or young people or um, even people, you know, say young people even in their 20s or 30s that uh, suffered severe injuries or, uh, you know, uh, died or whatever for uh, far too early in their lives. Mm. Um, not, that, not that age makes it worthwhile or makes it easier, but... Uh, no, but it does change our perception it of does things. Change That's understandable. Yes, mm. certainly does. Well, uh, back in back in your day, was there much psychological support for that kind of thing? There, there wasn't in the very early days, but in the early nineteen eighties, we developed a peer support program and a critical incident stress team, uh, which was basically a psychologist and a couple of uh, other trained persons, and people like myself who applied to do the job. I applied as a peer support officer, and was trained as a peer support officer in the early nineteen eighties for the general ambulance officers, whether they be MICA or non MICA. Um, and but it was a in those days it was a work in progress and now it's a much better system and the ambulance service Victoria has got a system of peer support um, and they're actually helping our retired ambulance association develop a peer support which I'm sort of adjunct to as a welfare officer. Very good. Okay, so what made you decide to change careers for a second time? Well, sort of. Yes. <laughs> well, yes, it was. Um, I think I, I'd got to the stage where I'd done. Eight years on MICA, I'd been teacher at the school, uh, teaching the MICA program uh, at our training college, and I was looking to expand into management or, or expanding my into an area of administration. Uh, th- those jobs were very, very difficult to get. Uh, I eventually got a job as in uh, in management um, as I left the MICA program, went into management in the late nineteen eighties, uh, and then there was a massive restructure of the ambulance service. At the same time the restructure was occurring, I actually started training as a, a hypnotherapist, clinical hypnotherapist, um, and qualified as a clinical hypnotherapist whilst I was working for the ambulance service, working part-time a couple of nights a week in clinic, seeing patients as well as going to work. 
um, doing my administrative work. And when the restructure occurred in the early 1990s, I was a bit dissatisfied with the, the direction they were going. And at the same time, the person who was in charge of the clinic I was working part-time in and teaching in at, at a training college I was teaching anatomy and physiology and basic hypnosis uh, offered me a position as senior clinician and uh, course coordinator and senior lecturer in hypnosis and the timing seemed right for me and uh, checked with the family seemed right for everybody that uh, maybe my future was not necessarily battling my way through uh, restructured ambulance administration uh, but to change careers. So let, let's take it back a step. So how did sure. you discover the field of hypnotherapy? Uh, I think I'd, I'd been interested in, in that thing, that sort of thing for a long time. I did, as I said earlier, and I looked at psychology as a possibility mm-hmm. um, at, when I was at school, uh, when I gave up my, my idea of doing medicine, um, but never took that any further. And then when I sort of was always intrigued by it, so I just actually saw an ad in the paper for... Training in clinical hypnotherapy in, in the local in the um, Herald paper. Oh, that's, sorry, the Herald Sun paper, and um, so I applied and got into the course. Right. Okay. And so, um, as you said, you became a senior senior clinician, senior lecturer within the over a couple hearing. of years. Yes. Over a couple yeah. of years, sure. Yes. And so, uh, how did your career progress after that? Uh, fairly good for a couple of years in the academy. I was teaching in the academy that I trained in and working at the clinic attached to that academy for a couple of years. And then I decided to branch out on my own or branch out away from that academy and formulated my own training academy and my own clinic separate to them. Uh, not necessarily in competition, but in, in, in uh, conjunction with, I suppose. Mm. We weren't competing per se, though you might say we were for students and, and clients, but uh, was nothing, no animosity or anything about it. Uh, and then that progressed there and I maintained two different academies, uh, one after another, uh, for then for the next... 10 years or so after that, 12 years. What was it like starting your own school? Very, very difficult. Um, I found it very difficult writing the curriculum. And not that I didn't know what I was doing, but of course, intellectual property is intellectual property. And so you can't just take someone else's work that I've been teaching. So I helped write part of the course that I was teaching uh, at the other academy. And then so I had to firstly start again and start writing the curriculum for the whole thing from start to finish, which was a time-consuming thing to do. Um, and then there's also the added things of running the business, the business side, you know, the uh, um, accounting and all that sort of stuff. So, yes, it was it was difficult. But I had a great deal of support from the family and uh, things like that, yeah. What was the, um, the biggest drive for you? Because, you know, making that sort of shift, uh, you know, it's one thing if you do that when you're, say, in your 20s, when you're not uh, encumbered or have, don't have other commitments. But to, to take on such a big task, I mean, it must have required a lot of thought. What, what factors um, sort of entered into your mind? Yeah, um, I had a great deal of support. As I said before, from the family, um, at that stage, uh, my wife was, uh, she was willing to uh, go back to full-time work to allow me to establish the clinic and the, and the new academy, which could be very slow at the start and was very slow at the start. Um, all, all of my sons were teenagers and they were very helpful in helping with our admin tasks, uh, answering phones when they were not at school or uni or whatever. And um, so that was pretty good because they were very helpful. So I was able to get through that side of it. Uh, and I had some great supporters from ex-students of mine who I then 
used as uh, tutors, facilitators and uh, visiting lecturers because a lot of my students in the early days, both at the original academy and then in my own, were um, professionals in other, other fields and they were able to then come in. So they were psychologists, or they were pharmacists, um, they were uh, you know, uh, naturopaths. So they were able to come in and, and help me by lecturing for me in their specialist field. So I had two psychologists lecturing for me on sessions, a naturopath, uh, another counsellor, had a pharmacist who was te- teaching about the effects of drugs on the mind and how it affects people's uh, perceptions and and emotions so i had some great support from those people as well uh, i mean did you did you particularly seek these people out or was it mostly opportunity um no i sought them out there were people that i'd as before there were ex-students most of them were mine not all of them one of the psychologists had been a psychologist before i even started um and was a senior uh, in one of our large universities uh and was looking for some part-time work and i met him as a because he was a hypnotherapist as well as a psychology lecturer at university and I met him at a seminar and we got chatting and I really liked his style. So I invited him to come and teach uh, psychological theories at, in, in the academy, which he did for um, the whole time it was running. So it was fantastic. And I said another psychologist was teaching counselling, counsellors were teaching counselling, pharmacists were teaching uh, pharmacology and things like that. So it worked out really well. I sought all the others out from people that I knew. So I understand that you also um, use your hypnotherapy experience to uh, go into other fields like radio. Tell me more about that. Oh, yes. Back in the mid-90s, 1990s, uh, one of my students actually worked for one of the radio stations and uh, he was talking to one of the presenters and said, um, you know, wouldn't it be great if you need someone for your, your show? Um, you get Collins to come in and, and do it. Uh, and... You know, do a feedback, a, a talkback for a, a half an hour, you know, once a week or something. Uh, this guy ran with it and it went for a couple of years, uh, uh, different nights, mainly started on Mondays and went up to Wednesdays at one stage. So that was good. So, yeah, going in and we'd often have a topic to start off the evening and then people would just call in and ask questions about therapy, what whether we could help them or, you know, w- what we could offer in different uh, physical or emotional uh, uh, situations. And that was exo- good fun. Another good change for me. Mm. Um, did, did your uh, hypnotherapy training take you anywhere else or into any other, uh, any other fields? Um, not particularly. Uh, I just enjoyed just doing the general counselling that went with hypnosis, but the hypno- I enjoyed the hypnosis better than I enjoyed the, the routine counselling. Fair enough. And so for, for you, what, um, what made you decide to leave that field? Uh, after a, a fair bit of time doing that, uh, I started feeling that I was not enjoying it as much as I started, and so it came a time when I was not uh, as motivated to continue on working in that field either. Um, I don't like the term burnout, but I, I think I was heading down that track, so um, I decided to take a year off uh, and reevaluate where I was, so I took the year off and end of that year I felt that I didn't wish to go back to either clinic or to teaching at that point so um, I dissolved. Fair enough. Um, so let's, uh, let's, let's, go, let's go all the way back for a minute. So as you said, when you were, when you were a kid growing up, your, your main thing was you wanted to be a doctor. That yes. was your, your goal. Where did that inspiration come from? Uh, I think uh, from in- involvement with medical practitioners. I had a few surgical procedures done when I was six and eight years old. Um, thought how wonderful that is to make kids better. Um, 
before that, I'd wanted to be everything, you know, footy player, astronaut, you know, fireman, policeman, all those other things. Pretty standard stuff. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. standard stuff. Uh, so I set my heart on, on medicine because I just thought it was fantastic the way the doctors had looked after me, the surgeons looked after me and uh, made me well. And I thought I could offer that back at that stage. So that was my focus at that point. Okay. So uh, having had uh, various careers, what did you, what do you think made with uh, sort of made the ideal job for you like what factors were important in terms of providing you with job satisfaction mainly the interaction with other people uh i am a people person i, I believe i am um i enjoyed the patients uh, in both my main main careers um, even the non-urgent patients in the early days i used to love taking some of the old uh, the old gentlemen from you know the war veterans to the repat for their checkups and that, and just talk about their experiences and their lives. And uh, so I got a lot out of just talking to people about their general lives. I uh, enjoyed the the uh, people I worked with most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, not always perfect, but had a great deal of uh, great colleagues in in the ambulance service. And then again in my career as a hypnotherapist, I uh, had some great colleagues and great supporters and friends from that. Um, so yes, I suppose the, the the most achievement was to see the see the positive outcomes. I suppose was the most important thing for me. Didn't always happen, uh, as you know yourself. That doesn't always work out that you get a positive outcome. Indeed. But that if there were more positives than negatives, then then I was doing something okay. That's good. So knowing what you know now, uh, would you have done anything different with your career path? Ooh, that's a difficult one. No, I, I don't think I, I would, Paul. I think um, I've been pretty satisfied overall with what I've done and what I've been able to contribute and what I've got back from those things. So I think you can't go back and say it would have been better if. Um, I don't believe you can because uh, none of us knows and uh, you know, there's more positives than, than negatives. So I think that's been worthwhile for me. Okay, so starting, I guess, with the first half of your career, for any aspiring paramedics out there, micro or otherwise, do you have any key bits of advice? Like anything in any of the helping professions, um, you know, your focus is on the the patient, the client, whatever you wish to call them. Um, They're someone's brother, sister, mum, dad or child. And if you treat them as if they are yours, you're relative or how you would like them to be treated, whether it is as, as a paramedic or as a hypnotherapist or any other helping profession, then you can't go too far wrong. Okay. Uh, uh, so any other more specific advice about how to cope with the job or anything? Again, I guess more things that you you wish you'd been told about when, before you entered the field? Probably, yes. Probably a little bit more. I think nowadays there, there, there are better um, support mechanisms for the, the stresses involved in, in both of those jobs, particularly you'll go back to the paramedic job, uh, where it is a very stressful position to be in. Um, and sometimes I think people don't understand what they're going to see, what they're going to do and what they're going to be confronted with, and they get a bit of a shock at the when they come across these things. Uh, but now I think the support's a lot better than it was in my, my early career. So... I suppose if I was giving advice, it would be make sure you really research the job, understand the job, and really have the commitment to the job. 
Um, uh, last question. So, uh, I mentioned this on the last show, but, but and this is the, sort of the main driver for this show. But you know, it is it is far more common um, these days compared to probably your generation to change your careers quite frequently. Uh, you know, there's um, the idea of job dissatisfaction for whatever reason is is sort of often the driving force. So, I guess for uh, sort of again looking to advice, what would you say to someone who's looking to change their career later on in life? I'd say, again, look into what you're doing, but make sure you have the right support mechanism around. And if you need to make the step or make the change, make it. All right. Great. Uh, anything else? Any other messages you'd like to send out to our listeners, Cole? Uh, not really, Paul. I think we've covered pretty much everything All right. that I wish to cover. Brilliant. Well, thanks for coming on to the show, Cole. Really appreciate it. Um, so, if you like what you heard, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, make sure you check out our website. That's www.nosmalljobspod.com.au. Don't forget the pod bit because I wanted to make sure we didn't sound like an employment agency. Um, we can also be found on Twitter at No Small Jobs Pod, and there's the Facebook page as well. Please like it uh, and pop on any comments you have about the show. If you do have any follow-up questions, feel free to post them up as well. I can't promise I'll get answers, but I can certainly try. Um, We're also looking for guests. Um, This show isn't about celebrities and famous people. There are plenty of those kind of podcasts out there. Um, We're looking for anyone with an interesting career path, whether you are uh, later on in your years and you've changed careers a few times or whether you've just got an everyday job that every time you introduce yourself to a new person, you get the response, what the hell is that? Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Uh, post a bio up on Facebook and uh, if you can get enough people to like it, whether that be fans or if you can reel in your family, please do so. Um, So thanks for listening. Uh, See you next time. And remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet.